I'm going to um, break all the rules of public speaking, uh, such as move around, don't sit down, because I've got a very painful hip. That's the bad news. The good news is that in about a week, I'm going to get, going to get a new one. <laughs> Some of you I know have uh, said you'd kindly pray for me. That's really nice, but pray for the uh, surgeon. That's even more important. <laughs> Right, does that come up? No. Good. Excellent. Well, as Steve says, um, I've spent a lot of my time, well, uh, all my working life in the city. I walked into the Bank of England in 1967. You do the maths. Um, <laughs> and uh, at one stage early in, in Oasis, uh, Steve persuaded Spurgeon's College, the Baptist Theological College, uh, to set up a new um, course um, which was about church planting rather than just being about pastoral. And uh, as a re result of that, he and I went on the board of Spurgeon's College. And my friends, you know, look at me and say, what, you're on a board of a theological college? But anyway, we did it. And I can remember talking to one of the, um, one of the um, um, teachers there who later became the principal. And he said, what do you do? And um, brilliant, thank you. And... Um, uh, I said, oh, I work, at, work in the city. I said, I sometimes find it difficult to match up working in the city with capitalism, all the rest of it, and Christianity. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, must be like sliding down a razor blade. <laughs> so here we go, slide down the razor blade. So this, these are the things we're going to be looking at um, uh, the markets and the Bible, the Bible and personal and community responsibilities, the markets and extortion, uh, the markets influence today and modern thought and, and then our role in all of this. So what are the markets? Well, the markets are very simple. It's one person is something that somebody else wishes to buy. It's one step on from barter where you've got a sheep and I've got some uh, wheat and you just swap it over and that's how it started. Now, nowadays, when you think about a market, you think about somebody paying for it with money, and we're very f familiar with them. Uh, in Matthew 20, there's a story about, um, uh, that Jesus says about um, the, the people who um, uh, the vineyard owner went out to hire, and he hired some at the beginning of the day, some in the middle of the day, and some at the end of the day, and the point of the story is they all get paid the same. So we're not going to look at that. It's just that this is one of the few places in the Bible which actually mentions markets. And it says about nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And there's not a lot about markets um, in the Bible because they were so commonplace. So if you went to, in, uh, to a town in, in, or a village in Jesus' time, there were markets, just as you, know, you go to a farmer's market today and there were people there swapping produce and so on and so forth. Whenever you mention markets, somebody will, uh, will mention Adam Smith and the invisible hand. We'll come back to Adam Smith right at the end. Um, and the, the point I would simply like to make about Adam Smith and the invisible hand is he did not support the idea that markets should only be influenced by, quotes, the invisible hand. Um, Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, and he was merely making an, ob an observation, a very important one about markets, that unless you control markets, there is no control on them. There's no morality, uh, there's no constraints, uh, they just get on with it. 
And in the worst cases, and we'll look at some worst cases, uh, this can be uh, very disruptive indeed. Uh, but he was not saying, as some of the right-wing economists and neoliberals say, that's how markets ought to work. They ought to be completely untrammeled. He did not think that. Interestingly, in the middle of the 18th century, he was a strong supporter of state education 100 years before it occurred. So it's, uh, it's really quite different from what um, people um, suggest it might be. But the Bible, I think, suggests there should be constraints on behaviour, not just in markets, but um, uh, throughout our lives. And we've already touched on some of it in some of the things that uh, Steve has been saying. So here is Genesis. God blessed them and said to them, this is Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in, in number, f fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what God was saying is, you are personally responsible for doing something in this world. Okay, we know uh, this was an analogy, uh, but the point is that they were not just going to wander around the garden and pick fruit and peel grapes. They had a job to do um, in the world, and there was personal responsibility. And then again, another story from Jesus, the story of the talents where G, um, the, the, return, um, the guy who went on a journey gave talents out to various people, and some of them, in, and this is the one who did best, he had five talents, he made five more talents. You remember, uh, at the other end, there was somebody who just stuck the thing in the ground. And Jesus says um, in this story, his Lord said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You were faithful over a few, few things, "'I will make you ruler over many things.'" enter into the joy of the Lord, i.e., you took personal responsibility for what I gave you and what I asked you to do. So there's a strong sense in the Bible, I believe, that we have personal responsibility, and that's um, quite important. But also, in a very strong sense in the Bible, we get told that we should also care for others. And here's some quotes. The Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind. He's filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. Work that one out today. Um, and then in Proverbs, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So right through the Bible, you get personal responsibility and you get things that say, uh, but you should also care for others. The personal responsibility is not just for you. It has to be taken outside. And here's um, uh, some other ones, some verses you know, you know well, where uh, Jesus says, I was hungry, I was in prison, you came and helped me. And they say, no, 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 we didn't. I've never been in a prison. And Jesus says, whatever you did it for one of these, you did it for me. So there's this strong sense that you should care for others. But also, there's a strong sense in the Bible that you do these things in community. Deuteronomy, there will always be pure, uh, poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your, towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Um, with a small C, there's a communist tendency there, a community tendency. And then in Acts, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And that's how the early church um, developed 
the sort of community that we talk about a lot in this church. So you've got personal responsibility, but you've also got care for others, and you don't just do that as a personal responsibility, you do it as part of a community. Um, and this is just another one, disciples as uh, each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers. Uh, so let's move on. Whenever, whenever I uh, say to somebody, I'm going to be talking about Christianity and, uh, and the markets, and they say, oh, yes, yeah, so there's Jesus driving out the money changers. And uh, it's a very vivid story. You can go to the National Gallery and see a big picture, probably it's by Titian or somebody like that, with Jesus with a whip, turning the tables over, and, and it all looks um, tremendous. Um, but there's much more to this story than just Jesus not liking the money changers. He didn't like the money changers because they were ripping people off. And to go and buy something in the temple, you had to change your money into temple money. So that's the first thing they did. And they had a big bid offer spread on that, I've no doubt. And then, of course, you, they then sold you the, um, uh, the, the, the dove you were going to sacrifice or the goat or something. And they had a big markup on that. So they, they could rip you off all the way down. So certainly the first thing about this story is um, Jesus was saying, I don't like people who um, run extortion. But look at this quote, and we're going to look at this in some detail. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, why did he say that? And what did he mean? And what lay behind it? Well, those two quotes come, uh, the first one from Jeremiah and the second one from Isaiah. And the way the Bible is written, that's all you get in, 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 in the Gospels. They just quote that. But the, the people listening, certainly the men, would have known the whole passages that those came from. They, they wouldn't have needed telling what the detail looked like. This is the detail of, um, of Jeremiah. If you really change your ways and your actions and, deals with it, and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner the fatherless or the widow, then, and so on and so forth. And then he goes on to say, but you don't do any of these things. You've made it, you've made my house a den of robbers. But look at um, who he's talking about, uh, the, the prophet. He's talking about the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, i.e. the excluded. We've just had, you know, um, Steve's pictures of people who were excluded because, the, you know, the fence was here. And this is, is really very much about those who are excluded. And then to get a change of voice, I'm going to ask Daniel to come down and, and read the next bit from Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Brilliant. Thank you very much. 
I don't know if you can see a sort of theme developing here. So here we get again, we, we, get, um, we get the eunuchs again, and we get the foreigners again. And uh, the, uh, the prophet is saying, for the Lord, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So there's a suggestion here that the eunuchs and the foreigners, not who you would normally think of, are going to be part of... Um, um, of, of God's work and God's temple. Um, and this famous uh, phrase, um, it will be a house of prayer for all nations. My wife's not here to, um, uh, today, um, but she's the, uh, an elder of the Church of Scotland in, um, in Knightsbridge. I think one of the most beautiful um, post-war buildings there is, certainly the sanctuary. But as you go in, there's a big plaque, and on it it says... My house shall be a house of prayer, but it doesn't say for all nations. And I think they think uh, the house of prayer is just for Scots. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the all nations bit, as I pointed out to them several times, is actually quite um, important. <laughs> and, and then if you read on with uh, the story of uh, Jesus chucking the, uh, the money changes out, you come to this bit. Uh, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, says to the son of David, they were indignant. So what's this all about? Well, it, if you want to know what it's all about and why Jesus quoted those texts, I think you have to look at the, at the temple. And what the money changers had done is they'd filled up the court of the Gentiles. I don't know if you can see it there. And so that was the court where the foreigners, i.e. they were Jews, but they were not Jews by birth, uh, were allowed to come. Uh, but the people who were not allowed to come were disabled people. And eunuchs couldn't go because they were disabled. And lame people couldn't go. And that was how the, um, uh, the lawyers at that time, or uh, the past 300 years, had in interpreted a few proof texts from Deuteronomy and what have you. So the, the, the point about the money-changing story is, yes, it's a story about money and Jesus not lying, liking extortion, but it's also about exclusion. And he was saying, it's not just that you're extorting money from people, but because of where you set up, you're preventing people from being included um, in God's work and in God's temple. Go back at some stage, perhaps, and, and look, at, um, look, look at those uh, verses in Jeremiah and Isaiah. They're, they're, they're quite important, I think. Another thing that we find in the Bible is powers and principalities. Uh, Ephesians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I think that some of these powers and principalities are not just spiritual in, in the normal sense of the word, um, but I think we, we encounter them day to day. So market forces can, uh, can change. Are there a structural power? This is the front page of the FT yesterday. Markets scorn Turkey's new economic model to stop Lira slide. I don't know if you've been watching what's going on in Turkey. They're, they're in deep trouble. Um, 
And here's some, some examples. In 1974, I was the uh, governor, I was the private secretary of the governor of the Bank of England, and the, the government broker came in. In those days, the only, way, the only way you could channel government debt out to the market was through the government broker. And he came in and he said to the governor, um, there's a guilt strike, they will not buy government debt. Strength of the market. And they wouldn't do that, I think it was Callaghan's time, uh, because they thought that the government expenditure was too high. And uh, it resulted um, a few months later in the governor and, and Healy were going out to the airport, they were going to fly to the IMF, and the governor persuaded Healy that he'd have to go back to London, sit down with his cabinet and say, you can't spend any more money. That, whatever you think of the politics of it, is the power of markets. Look at the impact on the Greek economy over the last five years. Uh, and again, it was quotes market that did it. It was the same problem that uh, how much government debt can you actually uh, live with. Um, but it was the markets that nearly took the, um, uh, the Greek, uh, Greece out, out, out of the euro. European banks were shorted. Um, is that a good thing to do? Is it an honest thing to do? So particularly the American hedge funds looked at what was happening to the American, uh, European banks in the crisis and shorted particularly their bonds and so on and so forth, and the politicians got very upset. Facebook, have you thought about Facebook? Facebook started um, in Silicon Valley, just as somewhere where people can swap ideas and, and so on and so forth. And Google the same, great um, IT ideas, completely unconstrained. And they're just beginning to understand that they probably ought to have some social responsibility, that they cannot exist only as just a, a, an unconstrained marketplace. And you've seen some of the problems they're getting into. CAP, Common Agricultural Policy, if there's one good reason, there's not many, if there's one good reason for leaving Europe, I would say it's the Common Agricultural Policy. And that's where people have intervened in the market in a perverse way. What the Common Agricultural Policy does is it prevents developing com uh, countries selling their food to us because it would be cheaper than the French farmers can provide. That seems to me to be a very, very perverted uh, market. PPI, you've heard the adverts, they're all around. Every single pound that British banks have raised in new capital since the crisis has been to pay for PPI. £30 billion. Pounds. Just think how many you know, hospitals that could have built. Money completely wasted and what I consider one of the biggest corporate frauds there's ever been. Uh, and high-frequency traders, if you know what they are, they work with algorithms. They don't care at all what happens to the underlying companies. So let's just have a quick look at some of the people who thought about these things. Adam Smith, he's known for the... Um, uh, for his uh, major work on, on uh, the economy. But actually, the, the book he wrote before was about moral philosophy. And um, he actually was much more interested in describing markets and making sure they work correctly. Uh, there's a new book um, on Adam Smith by Jesse Norman, who, believe it or not, is a Conservative MP, but it's a very good book. And this is, a, this is taken from a... Um, um, a book review uh, by John Kay and in it he says he did understand that a successful market economy requires the legal, social and economic infrastructure that only a strong state can provide. 
Now, if you take that, those economic and, and sort of legalistic world, words, I think that's an exact description of how the biblical principles and precepts would or should look at markets, uh, that you should intervene in them uh, in a way which uh, produces good communities, make sure that the uh, poor are well looked after and so on and so forth. And when I was learning my economics, uh, I'm not actually a, an economist, but uh, I did do some economics in the bank. Um, one of the writers who influenced me a lot was a guy called James Mead, um, now dead, but he won the Nobel Prize for his economics. And his view stated was, uh, you should allow markets to run themselves and only carefully intervene where, where it's strictly necessary. And of course, the question is, how do you judge what is strictly necessary? So this is one of the things he said. Uh, the intelligent radical is at heart an incurable egalitarian and is appalled by the gross inequalities which he observes in modern society. He could have written it today, couldn't he? But he actually wrote it in 1975. And so I think you get the same idea uh, that markets, if they're to work for us and for the total population and the total world, you do have to intervene in them um, in particular ways. So, what's our role in this? The legal, social and economic infrastructure, which I've just quoted, it sounds to me like politics. So, one of the responses we can um, do is actually to get um, involved in politics. Uh, he's not here today because he's up in his constituency for the holidays, but often you will see um, coming in here um, Johnny Reynolds, who's the Labour city minister. Um, I had an uh, an email exchange with him uh, in, pre in preparing this, and he made a couple of suggestions. I haven't taken either of them. Um, <laughs> Frank Field, you'll have heard of, great Christian uh, MP, uh, chairman of the uh, Work and Pensions Committee. When he was in that role about 10 years ago, I was a special advisor to him. And you can go down the list. Ian Duncan Smith used to work in this building, working out um, how you can balance helping the poor but not taking away personal responsibility. Gary Streeter, uh, well known to us. Steve Webb, best pensions minister we've probably ever had. Tremendous Christian Stephen Timms, Andrew Donis. I could go on with the Christians in... Um, Adonis is now in the House of Lords, but, you know, in politics... So I would like to think that in 10 years' time, two of you are fully involved, up to your neck in it, committed to politics, putting some of these biblical precepts in, into, in, into place, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and I'd like to see that some, some of you do that. Uh, but also, I think that it would be equally good, and maybe some of you already are there, um, if some of you were to become investment bankers, very you know, closely involved in the financial world, because my own view is we must not leave the financial world to those who have no morals and no principles. So if you get offered a good job, don't turn it down because it's just in the city, would be my advice. Go and do it, but try and keep your head with the biblical principles that come behind it. So there we are. Um, I think we should uh, uh, leaven markets. Um, uh, the, the way they've behaved over the last 10 years, uh, i.e. the people in the markets behaved, I think is quite appalling. 
And so just to give you an idea of where else you could go with this, you can come along this evening and here's some of the things that we'll talk about. The huge beneficial changes in the world economy over the last 60 years. The improvement in uh, life expectancy, um, the fall in postnatal deaths and so on and so forth is just astonishing globally. I mean, because we, we look around here and see the deprivation and um, uh, the NHS in trouble, uh, we maybe don't see what's been happening in China and India and sub-Saharan Africa, and some of the stories are, are tremendous. We can talk about how, how privatisation was initiated by uh, a Labour minister. I was there. Um, we can talk about why the welfare state was not a great socialist triumph. Beveridge hated it after five years. Um, and we can also talk about why Trump will be re-elected. So... Having set that up, I imagine you'll all be there at half past six. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>